0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we're going to talk about um, another maritime mystery, which I know a lot of our listeners have written when we've talked about shipwrecks and they really enjoy them. But this one does not involve a ship. It involves them, but in a a secondary sort of way. Uh, It doesn't center around a ship at all, but in fact, a lighthouse. Yes. Uh, so just for a little bit of background, the Flannan Islands, also called the Flannan Isles, are uh, named after a 6th century Irish bishop who is storied to have brought good fortune to everything he, and everyone he touched. And the Flannan Isles, which are off the coast of Scotland, uh, have been rumored for centuries to be haunted by either sea spirits or other supernatural powers. But the event that we're talking about today is uh, an incident that happened in 1900. Construction of the Flannan Lighthouse ran from 1896 to 1899, and it cost 7,000 pounds to build. David Stevenson was a relative of Robert Louis Stevenson, and he was the person who designed it, and the contractor on the job was named George Lawson. The lighthouse officially started its duties in December of 1899. And the lighthouse was owned by the Northern Lighthouse Board in Edinburgh, which is a company that at the time owned and operated more than six dozen lighthouses and employed 600 men. That company does still exist today, but that was those were its stats at the time. The lighthouse was built on Eileen Moor, which is the largest of the seven islands that make up the Flannans. And these are also called the Seven Hunters. Eileen Moore sits about 18 miles from Gallon Head on the west coast of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides. This area, prior to there being a lighthouse there, had been extremely dangerous for merchant ships. Uh, and so that's really why there was cause for a lighthouse to be built. And for stats on the lighthouse itself, it was uh, 75 feet tall. It still is, in fact. It stands at the top of a 150-foot cliff, and it's a pretty sheer drop-off to kind of raging waters between the islands. Uh, and when it was built, it produced 100,000 candle power, and it flashed twice every 30 seconds. Uh, and those flashes were visible, theoretically, for a radius of 20 miles. It was built to be incredibly sturdy, and it really had to be, because it was sitting there on a rocky cliff in the North Atlantic. And aside from the lighthouse keepers, there were no other inhabitants on the Flannins. If you look at pictures of them, there is pretty much empty desolate rock. There's, they're very small and there's not really much you could do with that land. It's so desolate, desolate in, in a beautiful Oh, it's lovely. Way. It's very remote. The wildlife in that area is some of it's really unique. It's a very pretty area, but yeah, not so hospitable for people to make their lives there. No. There was always a list of men willing to work the lighthouse, and it used a rotating schedule of two-week shifts. The duties of the men who were employed there by the Northern Lighthouse Board included polishing the lenses every day, keeping the mechanics working and clean, maintaining the buildings, and generally keeping the place tidy. And because of the lack of radio contact at the time, the Northern Lighthouse Board had actually uh, made a deal with a gamekeeper on the island of Lewis named Roderick McKenzie, in which they would pay him eight pounds per year to keep an eye on the lighthouse. And he was instructed to report to the board's headquarters if the light ever went out. So in mid-December of 1900, the lighthouse was manned by three people. There was James Ducat. The principal, he was 43, and he had two decades of lighthouse experience. He was also married and had four children. His second assistant was Thomas Marshall, and he was 28 and not married. Then Donald MacArthur was an occasional uh, keeper, and he was sort of an alternate. He was serving for William Ross, who was the first assistant and was out on sick leave. So Donald was 40 and married. And on December 15th of 1900, an American vessel, the SS Archtour, which was en route from Philadelphia to Leith, passed by Eileen Moore just before midnight. And the captain of that vessel, Captain Holman, uh, noted that there was no light emanating from the lighthouse. And when the Archdwar made port three days later, he reported that missing light to the port authorities. But for some reason, that information was never relayed to the Northern Lighthouse Board at that time. It just kind of died on the vine. Yeah, and also in the for-some-reason category, Gamekeeper McKenzie also hadn't reported the outage to the board. We'll actually come back to why that may have been the case in a bit. But uh, so... That had been, again, on December 15th, and then they reported it three days later. But it wasn't until December 26th that some someone arrives to check out the situation. And on that day, Captain James Harvey, who was aboard the Northern Lighthouse board boat, the SS Hesperus, approached Eileen Moore. And on board with him was a man who had been intended to replace one of the three men stationed at the Flannan Lighthouse. So he was going to be a shift change, and they were going to rotate one man out. Uh, the Hesperus had actually been originally scheduled to make the relief personnel switch on December 20th. But because of adverse weather, they weren't able to stick to their schedule and they were delayed by several days. At this point, the lighthouse had been dark for 11 days and people were really worried about what was going on. No one welcomed Harvey's boat at the landing stage. So the captain, at first he blew the ship's whistle uh, and siren and then he fired at a distress signal repeatedly so that he could alert the keepers of his arrival. But no response ever came. No one came down from the lighthouse. Relief keeper Joseph Moore rode ashore. He went up the cliff steps to the lighthouse. And it's worth noting that because no one was at the landing stage to help them, he had to kind of back into the landing and jump ashore. So this was a tricky maneuver and possibly dangerous. Moore made his way to the lighthouse, and he proceeded initially to the kitchen. And there he found uh, a few things that were a little off. He found an overturned chair, the remains of an unfinished meal, and a clock which had stopped. And that clock comes up a lot, uh this being one of those history mysteries. Some people want to give it some sort of supernatural uh element, like the clock stopped. But remember, clocks had to be wound at this time. So that's... Yes. That's really uh, not a hint at anything supernatural going on. It had wound down. Yes. The beds were all made. The fire grate was cold. And Moore went on to investigate the rest of the lighthouse, but he couldn't find the keepers. There was a pet canary in a cage, which appeared not to have been fed for a while. The lighthouse mechanism, though, appeared to be fully functional. So there was no uh, mechanical problem that would cause it to go out. Uh And Joseph Moore wrote uh, a letter and his own description of the incident two days after this, which was on December 28th. And in it, he says... On entering the kitchen, I looked at the fireplace and saw that the fire was not lighted for some days. I then entered the rooms in succession, found the beds empty just as they left them in the early morning. I did not take time to search further, for I only too well knew something serious had occurred. I darted out and made for the landing. When I reached there, I informed Mr. McCormick, as an aside, Mr. McCormick was the second mate of the Hesperus, Uh, I informed Mr. McCormick that the place was deserted. He, with some of the men, came up a second time so as to make sure, but unfortunately, the first impression was only too true. So after Moore reported back to the Hesperus that he couldn't find any sign of life at the lighthouse, more men from the boat joined him and started a thorough search of the small island, and there was no trace of the three missing men. So Joseph Moore, along with three volunteers, uh, which included um, an Alan McDonald, who is a buoy master, and two seamen, uh, Mr. Lamont and Mr. Campbell, remained on the island to keep the lighthouse in operation while the investigation continued. Because while this mystery slash tragedy had occurred, they still had to warn ships away from the rocks. Captain Harvey sent a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board Telling them about the tragedy and uh, letting them know that arrangements had been made for the Lighthouse. And then on December 29th, so three days after the initial discovery, uh, board superintendent Robert Muirhead arrived at Eileen Moore to probe the matter. And he made arrangements for a new crew for the interim management of the Lighthouse station. And then he set to the business of investigation. He went through the lighthouse again, looking for for clues, but he couldn't find anything suspicious aside from the overturned chair and the abandoned meal. And the last slate entry, which was written on the morning of December 15th, had not yet been transferred to the log. So we've talked about this before, where often there's the book log, but what will often happen is on a chalkboard or a slate, they'll write down log entries before they transfer them down. It's kind of like an interim step. So that last slate entry, not in the log, um, Included no extraordinary information. It was, you know, standard barometer, thermometer readings, and then notes about the wind conditions. But nothing jumped out as odd. The work that would have been done the morning of the 15th had all been done. From Weirhead's report, the lamp was crimmed, the oil fountains and canteens were filled up, and the lens and machinery cleaned, which proved that the work of the 15th had been completed. So the afternoon of the 15th was pinpointed as the probable time of the disappearance. And uh, it was also noticed that only one set of wet weather gear was remaining in the building, and that was MacArthur's, which meant that Ducat and Marshall had been wearing theirs. And it also, you know, suggested that MacArthur went out in his shirt sleeves, which further suggested a possible emergency situation. Because remember, it's December. Yes. Well, and then sort of imagining in the North Atlantic. Yes, the, it's like the logical conclusion is: two men were outside in their wet weather gear. MacArthur was inside getting ready to eat. Knocked over the chair in his haste to exit. That sort of seems like a logical progression of events, but we don't really know. Yeah. According to lighthouse regulations, all three keepers were not supposed to be outside at the same time. Somebody always had to stay put inside the lighthouse. So something had caused them to break with their procedure. There was coiled rope discovered, strewn about the rocks below the crane platform. Uh, But the crane was secured, so that rope was not in use when the men disappeared. And the railings there were bent out of shape. There was also a block of stone that was estimated to weigh at least a a ton that had been dislodged from the cliff wall and had fallen onto the landing stage. Normally, all of this rope would have been stored in a box near the crane, but the box itself was missing. In the superintendent's report, he stated, quote, the ropes were strewn in the crevices of the rocks near the crane platform and entangled among the crane legs, but they were all coiled up, no single coil being found unfastened. So it didn't really look like the ropes had been uncoiled in some sort of rescue effort. Yeah, I think a lot of times when you read accounts of this incident, when they say that the ropes were strewn about, it in my head the first time I read about it, I was like, oh, they must have unfurled the ropes to try to reach someone. But then when you read uh, Weirhead's report, it clearly says, like, no, no, they were still all tied tight. They had just fallen out of their box. They were sort of scattered haphazardly. More scattered, yeah. Uh And there had also been a life buoy that had been fastened to the railings, and it was gone. But it appeared to have been swept away rather than used for an emergency evacuation. Because the fastening ropes that would have held it were still in place and tied with bits of canvas still attached to them. So it looked much more like a breakage than anyone had cut or unfurled them. Weirhead's assessment... Uh theorized that three men probably tried to secure the wooden box during some rough weather and then were swept away by a large wave while they were trying to work. He wired his findings to his superiors and then called the widows of Duckett and MacArthur. Uh, in his report, Weirhead notes that Joseph Moore was severely shaken by the events that had happened at Eileen Moore and stated, quote, If this nervousness does not leave Moore, he will be re- he will require to be transferred. But I am reluctant to recommend this as I would desire to have one man at least who knows the work of the station. So at that point, because the other three men were gone, uh, he wanted someone on shift who was familiar with that particular lighthouse and its workings. He also investigated the seeming negligence of the gamekeeper, McKenzie. So as we talked about earlier in the podcast, the light had been out for a while and he hadn't said anything about it. After first talking to McKenzie's sons and then with Mackenzie himself and discovering that the light had not been seen between December 7th and 29th, he reported, quote, McKenzie stated, and I have since verified this, the light sometimes cannot be seen for four or five consecutive nights. But he was beginning to be anxious at not seeing it for such a long period, and had, for two nights prior to its reappearance, been getting the assistance of the natives to see if it could be discerned. Had the lookout been kept by an ordinary lightkeeper, I believe it would have struck the man ashore at an earlier period that something was amiss. And while this would not have prevented the lamentable occurrence taking place, it would have enabled steps to have been taken to have the light relit at an earlier date. So he's basically chalking all of this up to the fact that McKenzie was not an experienced lighthouse keeper. It was, it was a problem of inexperience rather than just falling down on the job. Right. Uh, yeah, and Mackenzie, it turns out, had kept records and had noted these, you know, times when the lights would go dim, but they always came back, so. So that was uh, Weirhead's report. And as Tracy mentioned earlier, based on the weatherproof gear being gone, it seems like two men went out to do some things, Something took place and a third man left, which is basically kind of what Weirhead suggests. But despite that report, uh, there are some sticking points that bother people that really love a good mystery and to theorize about other things. Uh, and some of those sticking points include... Number one, none of the bodies ever washed back on shore. And as the second one, the men were generally fairly experienced seamen and lighthouse keepers. Uh, it would be odd for them to be taken unawares by a wave. However, freak waves do happen in the North Atlantic as they do in other bodies of water. So it's conceivable that they could have just been surprised by a water wall whipping up. It's also really not addressed why one of them would have been out in the December wet weather without his wet weather gear on. Yeah, although, you know, there are lots of theories that pretty quickly explain that away yeah it's, it seems pretty logical and believable that if there were a dire emergency somebody could run out without their coat on yeah uh and while the tipped chair and the abandoned meal found in the kitchen suggested an emergency the gate and the door to the lighthouse were actually closed when joseph moore first arrived there which seems contradictory initially but uh Many have kind of written that off as it being entirely possible that the wind just blew them shut. It is a very windy area. Another problem was that the weather on the day of the last entry in the lighthouse log, and the first time the light was noted to be missing, which was December 15th, that had been a clear day. There were storms the day after, but not on the 15th. So again, if it were a weather thing, it would have to have been a a freak wave. Uh, so because there are just enough question marks still on this story, uh many other theories and stories grew out of the mystery to ex- had to explain what had happened to the keepers. And we'll do a short list of them. And some of them are very funny. But uh, again, remember, the three men did th- lose their lives. But some of these really are outlandish. I find all of them to be very silly. Yeah. Uh, one is that a foreign power had landed and captured the men. Because lighthouse keepers are who you want to take prisoner. Totally. Spaceships. Spaceships. They really, there were people theorizing that aliens had landed. Also, ghosts. And uh, alcoholic murder-suicide. My favorite, the sea monster theory, that some sort of sea monster had come out of the North Atlantic and dragged them off. They, okay, this one's not actually funny, uh, but the, the maybe they were lost trying to help a vessel that was in distress. Yeah, although to the best of my knowledge, there are no records of a distressed vessel happening at the same time. No. Uh, and the last one on our list, but there are more, is that they were carried off by giant birds. The, there are only two things on this list that seem remotely feasible to me. The murder-suicide or the lost while yeah. Yeah, trying to help another vessel? Yeah. Yeah, uh, most people agree, I think, that, uh, one or two of the men likely went out to the landing stage to secure something, probably this box with the ropes in it, and, uh, was swept away, one or both of them, and that the rema- whoever was remaining went out to help and got swept away also. At the end of his report, which was dated January 9th, 1901, Superintendent Muirhead said, I was with the keepers for more than a month during the summer of 1899, when everyone worked hard to secure the early lighting of the station before winter. And working along with them, I appreciated the manner in which they performed their work. I visited Flannan Islands when the relief was made, so lately is 7th December, and have the melancholy recollection that I was the last person to shake hands with them and bid them adieu. Yeah, that's... uh. It's sort of an interesting point that adds color to this whole story is that Weirhead knew all of these men personally. He wasn't just like a bigwig from the company that came to look things over and write his report. He was investigating the deaths of men that he knew and appeared to have really liked. If you read his report, he really says very good things about them, even beyond that that brief bit uh that Tracy just read. So it it's a little bit extra melancholy to think of him, you know, having to investigate the death of people who were basically his friends. Uh and born of this tragic incident, there have been a couple of interesting pieces of art. Uh, one is a poem entitled Flannan Isle, which was written in 1912 by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. And it uh, tells the tale of a mystical force that turned the men into seabirds. There is another story that goes along with the landing of the Hesperus and Joseph Moore's exploration, Uh, that says that Joseph Moore allegedly saw these three odd birds on the island when he first landed uh, on December 26th, and that story is what provides the inspiration for that poem. The opera, The Lighthouse, composed by Sir Peter Maxwell Davis, was also inspired by The Vanishing at Flannan Isles. It debuted at the Edinburgh Festival in 1980. This version becomes more about the tension among the three men trapped together at the lighthouse. Yeah, it almost goes along with the Alcoholic murder, suicide theory. I have not actually seen uh, that opera, but it, it seems to be much more about interpersonal communication and the drama of that. Uh, and the and Lighthouse still stands. It remained manned peacefully and without incident. So for all of the stories of the islands being haunted didn't seem to have any effect on the functioning of the lighthouse. Uh, it continued to be manned by a crew until September 28th of 1971. And at that point, the lighthouse at Eileen Moore became what's called a major automatic light. So it's fully automated, it's unmanned, uh, it receives maintenance visits and annual inspections, but it doesn't have a crew that stays there. In 2000, the three lost lighthouse keepers were commemorated in a ceremony attended by residents, relatives, and officials from the Northern Lighthouse Board. And mystery lovers, of course, still, uh, bandy about theories as to what really happened on December 15th of 1900. Although I think most historians accept some variation in Weirhead's report that yeah. it was really just sort of a, an unfortunate accident that happened, uh, while trying to secure something. Yeah. At the crane and the landing stage. I think I would have liked to have been a lighthouse keeper. You think? Mm -hmm. Uh, Allegedly, this, one of the reasons they always have people wanting the job is that compared to other jobs at the time, it was a pretty sweet deal. I mean, you had to be away from your family, but you, you know, basically got free room and board during that time. It wasn't particularly horrible or arduous work. If you had any experience with the sea, it probably seemed pretty easy by comparison. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a really good job to have. Yeah. All those solitary jobs that don't really exist anymore, like Lighthouse Keeper or the <laughs> uh, the people who man fire watch towers in forests. Yeah. Like all of those. You want them. They, they're pretty appealing to I me. I see the appeal of them, but I would go a little crazy after a bit. Yeah. I think. Do you also have some listener mail? I do indeed. Uh, this is about our episode on Pluto. And it's from our listener, Helene. She says, Hello, ladies. As a professional astronomer, I was very happy to listen to your latest podcast on Pluto. Did a great job of explaining its discovery and the controversy regarding its classification as a planet or dwarf planet. I did not get to attend the International Astronomical Union Conference where Pluto was demoted, but I celebrated the event with many astronomers from my department, as we pretty much all agreed Pluto was an oddball that did not really deserve to be called a planet. Uh, there are, after all, several objects within its vicinity with a larger mass. I have one minor error to point out. Uh, the moons P4 and P5 have recently been named as Kerberos and Styx, respectively. That is an instance where we recorded an episode, and in the gap between when we record it and when it publishes, things happen. I think that literally happened two the- days yeah. Two days it, after we recorded. <laughs> it was really right in that. I think, I think it actually happened basically as we were in the studio, but it wasn't announced yeah, <laughs> until a it, couple of days, days after days days later. Recorded. So, uh, so yeah, we uh, did not have the names. We didn't know they were there yet. Uh and then she mentions another good uh podcast idea which you know what I'm not going to read because I want to do it. Okay, I'll surprise people with more astronomy. I've had some listener mail like that too. I love but it. Things that are I'm like that needs to become a whole episode, not just a thing that we read. I love it. I love it. has great stuff. So thank you Helene. Uh it's always great to hear from people in the fields that we talk about, particularly astronomy since it is near and dear to my heart. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also visit us on Twitter at MissedInHistory, at Facebook.com slash HistoryClassStuff, and on Tumblr at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we're also on Pinterest. So if you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can do that as well at our, at our website. Uh, if you go there and you type in the word lighthouse in the search bar, you will get an article called How Lighthouses Work, which explains a little bit more about How they function and how they are no longer the solitary dream job Tracy once uh, yearned for. I love lighthouses. I do too. Not just the idea of working at one, just in general. Yeah, they're just a cool, they have a long history. They started way back in Egypt, so Mm -hmm. they're uh, fascinating. Uh, If you'd like to learn about almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our website too. And that is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.